you're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, Build Up community. We're so glad you're tuning in. I'm Steph, Build Up's Executive Portfolio Manager. Today's episode of the Nonprofit Build Up podcast is part two of a two-part conversation titled Drowning in Black Genius with Marcus Littles and A. Nicole Campbell. And this is a personal favorite. While the topic could be discussed any time of the year, we wanted to be sure that while the world is celebrating Black History Month, we can allow them to also pay attention to the literal present-day genius of Black folks as well. In today's episode, Marcus Littles, founder and senior partner at Frontline Solutions, continues to discuss his organization's evolution over the last 18 years. Frontline Solutions, while a management consulting firm, was never intended to be just that. This Black-founded and led company is comprised of a diverse team of activists, scholars, advocates, coaches, strategists, and artists. They draw on these multifaceted perspectives and lived experiences to engage with organizations in the journey towards their boldest, most expansive visions. Tune in to learn more about how Frontline Solutions continues to build and support an ecosystem that is drowning in Black genius. It goes back to what you shared at the very beginning, like not recreating the wheel, but reclaiming it, right? And so when I think about communities of practice and learning communities, they've existed, but your focus changing who the learners are. And I think it's reframing the whole conversation, right? Is what I just heard what you describe and how you all are thinking about and approaching these communities. So with all of that in mind then, Marcus, how does this show up within Frontline Solutions itself? How do you all operationalize all of these concepts that you've been talking about, all of the ways in which you are approaching the work, your methodology. How does it show up? How you're staffing, how you're structured, how you're thinking about which engagements to take on, which clients to work with. It shows up a couple of ways. You know, I'm I'm really really proud of who Frontline is and has become. Like you know, Melissa DeShields, who's one of the owners, is the CEO now. Is a visionary, amazing leader. Micah, one of my co-founders, is a genius and empathetic. And there's not a time you talk to him and don't feel better or challenged from it. Like, sir, I, I am proud of who we are and that we have struggled, hopefully transparently and out loud, right, to be who we imagine other institutions and who we imagine our community to be. Give as an example, we have done a lot of work around helping organizations operationalize diversity, equity, inclusion in their culture, in their operations, in their program, et cetera. And wrote a couple of articles where I used to say all the time to folk when they were interviewing us, I would say, hey, like, you know, you can hire us or don't hire us, but we are an institution. And at whatever point in time, it's usually been from you know, 15 employees to to close to 40, but we are institutions. So we are a culture and we are an organization. And so our consulting practice with you all, one of the resources we're drawing from are the things that we are struggling through. Hopefully 
with integrity as an institution. So hire who you want to hire. But I always say like sort of I don't trust the consultants who come in. They're like, well, we've always done it right. Like if folk don't have a me story around how they messed up or how they had to struggle through it, that annoys me. I actually don't I don't enjoy perfect people or this frame of like just kind of this equity exceptionalism or or sort of I've been awake all my life. And so I didn't have to have an awakening. Right. And so I, I use that as, as an example, because I think that. Yeah, like we did a pay equity study for our team and then sort of and we think we're really, really good. and We know this work really well. And then the pay equity study comes out and there's pay equity disparities. And I'm like, no, not me. You know, I sound like sort of the white people who say I have black friends. I'm like, I would never be a part of an institution where women, black women were not paid equitably to men. Never, not Marcus, right? Like, sort of not like, and it's not mine, all the, you know, what I mean? but like, I just, you know, really personally. And so we had to do those things. We had to name those things. We had to struggle through those things. We had to define what it means to be an equitable institution. You know, our work around values. We used to have a, you know, one iteration, we had like a frontline genome, right? Like, what does diversity mean? Like, what do these things mean to us? And we would send out that genome to folk who applied for jobs. And the first question, if they got to interview was, tell me what you think about it. Tell me what you think is BS. Tell me what inspires you. Tell me, like, let's break that down because... We want you to know who we are and who we're trying to be from the beginning. And sometimes that would set a high bar that we were operating below, right? Like you are sharing people your aspiration, knowing that you fall short in some ways, which has an impact (laughs) on the culture. And sometimes folk are inspired and sometimes they're inherently disappointed, right? Because like, wait, well, you wrote this thing, but I see these challenges here. And so one, I mean, and so like our work sort of in community, like we see ourselves like we are they. We work with all these nonprofits, foundations, et cetera. We also can't take the posture of like complete critique of philanthropy. Like we are not a watchdog. We are not in CRP who does amazing work. They've been a client before, right? Like here's what philanthropy is doing wrong in part because some of that is disingenuous, right? Because philanthropy pays a whole bunch of our bills. You know, like we are they, like the duality of having a a liberatory vision and operating within the context of a beneficiary of of capitalism, sort of like a participant. But we also feel like we can be a participant and a critic that like the folk who your biggest servant should be your biggest critic and your biggest critic should be your biggest servant. And like, what does it mean to to embody those things? And so I think that duality, that that nuance, like we try to bring that to our organizational culture and our pursuit of who we are as an institution and, and, and as a set of individuals who come together as a team. And then like in terms of who we are as the clients we take on, like if clients were perfect, they wouldn't need consultants. So what does it mean to both like sort of have a filter around, oh, are we aligned? But they're not snobs in terms of like, I looked at their board and their board is not 30% African-American, so we can't work with them. Like, I'm not mad at someone who's at that filter. But again, we chose our container of consulting is to help people like organizations transform from this to this. So our appetite for what is the appropriate starting place and then how do we do that and maintain wellness among team members, many of which 
not all, have come from work environments where they were minimized as Black women or as queer folk, that they were beat up. And so you come to a new institution smarting from that. But the gig is to help folk along a trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so like, what is the appropriate starting point? I wish I had an answer for you to say like, oh, we figured that out. Like, here is our formula to determine whether it's a good client or not. And it also sometimes depends on who you ask. Like Marcus does not do much of the client facing work anymore or hardly any of it, but I'm doing a lot of new business cultivation, right? And so how is my authority checked or assessed or even informed by the people who are doing the client facing work where I'm saying like, oh, I think they're a good client. And then sometimes some folk on staff are like sort of first meeting, I was clear like, oh, they're going to be problematic. And so (laughs) is it right or wrong? Or is Marcus blind to some things because he don't really have to do that anymore? Like, I mean, it's just real struggles to figure out, but like, hopefully it's principled struggle. Hopefully, like, we we try to, like, write about it internally. We try to write about it externally. We try to, like, be unapologetically, but also just sort of earnestly under construction, in progress, right? My colleague and great friend, Micah, talks about, like, he's talked about forever to where, like, you know, we are all in recovery from white supremacy and patriarchy. Not white people, (laughs) not Republicans, not, like, all of us, right? Because those are the default systems that we've grown up there's a way in which we are more comfortable, even if we don't agree, but we are more comfortable with some of the norms of white supremacy and patriarchy than we are mm-hmm. living in the reality that there's we're drowning in black genius. Sometimes we have to tap ourselves on the shoulder and say, like, there's black genius everywhere, right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't remind yourself that you go to the default of these systems that all our systems have been swimming in patriarchy and white supremacy. And so there's actually, as much as it's traumatic, there's an ease upon which we navigate because we've been professional navigators, right? So so my inarticulate way of answering your question is that like sometimes Mike and Melissa and I, and then like with the management team, like Lucy and Rhonda and Naisha, like sometimes we're waiting for the day when it's like, when does this get easier? Like, when are we getting <laughs> over the hump? And, I, you know, I don't know when it's not uphill. So do what you can do as long as you can do it. And then like equip and invest in other folk to do it when it's time for you to move on to the next thing. Yeah, agreed. Equip and invest. I'm just thinking and wondering how much of what you described is how you would also just describe being a Black-owned business in this space. How much of what you're describing is, you know, the joys of being a Black-owned business, the challenges of being a Black-owned business. And I'm just curious to get your reaction, your thinking around that, because you've been doing it for 19 years, right? And so you've seen a lot of evolution, a lot of change, even the past three years, right? We've all seen a significant amount of change. And so how are you holding all of what you described as being part of the Black-owned Black-led business experience. Yeah. So we haven't written on this, but I think there's this, you know, there's a way in which it's been important for us to like begin to bifurcate the difference between being Black-owned, being Black-led, and being Black-centered. And those things aren't exactly the same. And there are some tensions among each one of them, right? Like I have these principles of collectivism and et cetera, right? But the Black ownership part is that like sort of, it's some Black people 
signing their names on the bank documents, right? <laughs> right, like that. <laughs> right, like there's the like sort of black home, black home, like, but the underbelly of ownership. And yes, it is asset and wealth accumulation, like all the like really great aspirational words, but the underbelly are responsibilities as a black owned enterprise that gets assessed. And we are not alone, like you all, like many others across industry, like a black tax because sort of black ownership is still counter to the economic system that this country built. So, you know, there are the three extra questions you get on your loan application, right? Or on your line of credit sort of thing, right? Like sort of whether they're formal or informal, right? Like this is our 19th year. And this is like crazy to think, but like it was not until year nine, eight or nine, where we had any financing, right? So the first eight years was <laughs> if the contract hadn't paid, then like sort of then the staff doesn't get paid or the mm-hmm. owners are writing the check with resources we didn't have and then hope the thing comes in later on. And also in this social sector, it's really great that there's been that more normalization of Black folk and the BIPOC folk, you know, sort of being a part of the knowledge economy and consulting industry and having individual practitioners, organizations of all sizes growing and emerging. But part of the Black owned part of it is this notion of like how many times or how often today, even that we are fighting hard to justify rates that we know are hundreds of dollars less an hour of white counterparts or just what knowledge means. Like one of our client we've had for a long time, an organization we work with appeared a number of times in determining whether they want to accept the rate we're charging, not just as a firm, but a specific person, right? Like if you don't have a PhD, then there's a cap. It doesn't matter all the other inputs, right? And so we've been said like sort of, oh, like you don't have enough folk with PhDs on the team to be able to justify charging blank an hour. Now, to be really clear, we have a whole lot of people on our team with PhDs, like sort mm-hmm. of like because that's one of their superpowers has been scholars in academia. And if I put that person on that project, you would have gotten the person lesser equipped to do that body of work. And that's not minimizing their PhD. That means that it is not an all encompassing indicator of what someone's capable of being able to do. And so we have a whole podcast on the black taxes that we end up paying. And I think it's both important to acknowledge it, but we also have had to like put it in context and again, navigating the traps and manifestations of white supremacy while trying to change it. And so we don't get as a black owned and black led institution. I think the biggest lesson for me is that like, we don't have the luxury of navigating or changing that the thing they never put in the job description is if you're going to sustain as an enterprise you need to get good at doing both mm-hmm. and <laughs> if you are just navigating and not seeking to change it i think that is physically emotionally psychologically unsustainable mm-hmm. one because you need to be changed but one i feel like i need to feel like we maybe didn't get that, but I need to tell these people why they were full of shit, right? <laughs> like, why the, like, <laughs> you may not hire, but let me tell you why that's some BS on this rate stuff. But then if you just are trying to change it, unless your container is, I am seeking to change this system and that is my work, 
And that is the case for some, mm-hmm. but if you're just doing that and you're not navigating, I refuse to navigate, then you're actually not getting some of the other important parts of the work done. That's my biggest takeaway around like sort of you, you got to be a navigator and a change agent around it and figure out both emotionally, psychologically, mentally, you know, spiritually, like what the balance of those two things are while maintaining giving people paying them their check unless you have the benefit of having brilliant volunteers working for you, which you never have. Right. Yes. Yes to all of that. And I think when you're talking about navigation and change making, it's a nice framing of the thing because that's exactly what's happening. The black tax. Marcus, I'm going to say that this is just the beginning of a series of conversations that I think we have to have you and I, because I have so many additional questions about how we are doing that change making while navigating, right? What does it mean to really navigate? How do we define change, particularly when things are constantly changing around us? And how do you operate within a sector that you're just ultimately trying to change, right? And you're trying to impact at the same time and the communities that you're trying to work with or they've been historically left out of conversations that are often about them. And so how do you when you are part of these historically marginalized communities, take the conversation, lead it, pull in community members and make sure they're also leading it and changing the way we're having those conversations. And like you said at the very beginning, how we're learning, right? And changing who the learners are in that. So I think I started by saying this conversation would be about 30 minutes. So clearly I lied because it was just so good. And I, I literally could keep talking about this. And I do want us to think about like what that series of conversations could look like. Because what you've shared so far has been so incredibly powerful. I think what just keeps jumping out at me is both the vision and the reality of drowning in Black genius, right? Yeah. And centering that, realizing that, holding that, and then saying, how does this then inform the way we work, the way we approach yeah. our work? And again, that idea of both navigating while change making with holding that vision and reality of drowning in Black genius. Like, what does that all look like? And I think that that's just really powerful. It makes me think about how we continue to build our infrastructure. As you talked about how Frontline Solutions is looking at how it builds its infrastructure and centering its people within all of that, including in its work and who you're deciding who to work with and who not to work with. Right. And so, I think it's going to be very powerful for folks listening to this to think about both nonprofit leaders and philanthropic leaders, as well as folks who are providing advisory services, consulting services, right, to the sector, how we think about our approach to work, the work itself, and how they're showing up. And with all of that in mind, I do want to ask you a question to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn yeah. from yeah. or about. What book do you think we should read next? Or what artists do you think we should be paying attention to? So there's a number of artists and books, and, and, and sometimes it's just even just people who I'm sort of following that sort of respect the time of who always are a bellwether for how I'm seeing the world. And so I'll name a few. I mean, just one of the artists that and, I feel like I should go back and look at the words to make sure like it's it's all okay. But like I love Brittany Howard. I listen to her all the time. I listened to her like before before this podcast. 
I could make it about content or I could make it about like she's just an inspirational and brilliant cross-genre artist that I am super into. And in terms of people, like one person, she's actually in the sector and has been in the sector. Latifah Simon, she's actually running for Congress in California. I met Latifah when she was 19 or 20-year-old executive director of the Center for Young Women's Development. And one of the first work site visits I went on for when I worked for the Ford Foundation. And she's gone on since then to be a MacArthur genius and she's the president of Akinati Foundation and all these other things. But I actually have no real ties to California, except that, like, you know, I feel like I'm going around telling everyone, vote for Latifah Simon. She's amazing. So Latifah Simon has been really instructive into like sort of the world that I see and want to know and be a part of. And then a brother, Phil Agnew, who was one of the founder of Dream Defenders. Now he runs this organization, Black Men Bill. He's a, he's a friend, but he also he's a giant who I have just learned a ton from. And the last person, I always just like to name this woman. Jackie Barron. She actually passed away about eight years ago, a couple of days ago, and she mm-hmm. was, uh, worked for LDF and Legal Defense Fund, and she was at Ford, but she was over EEOC under the Obama administration, but she was a giant. And like when you ask the question, she's the first person who came to mind. And so even though I didn't have links to send people, I just wanted to honor the first name that came to mind is Jackie Barron. If you check out her career, I imagine you look at it and see something in it that is either encouraging or challenging or that pushes you to go on, I think. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing all of these folks, Marcus. What we'll do is we'll put their names and just some more about them in our show notes so that people can read more about the work that they have done and are doing. I want to thank you again so much, Marcus, for your time, for this very thought-provoking and change-making conversation. I do want to make sure that we continue it. And I think that all of the advice that you shared, the guidance that you shared, just being vulnerable, right, transparent about how you all are approaching the work and thinking through these things would be very helpful to other leaders to help them build bravely. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for letting people hear our conversations out loud. Of course. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast. To learn more about how you can work with the Buildup Companies, visit www.buildupcompanies.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.